Ahoy Mets fans! Welcome to episode 190 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and I'll be with you on this journey through Metsdom for this week. We have lots coming up on the show. We have an interview with minor league prospect Logan Taylor. We have another edition of Forgotten Mets, which is the first that was suggested by our listener. So thank you very much for that suggestion. But first, we are going to follow up with the 2016 MLB First Year Players Draft. Last week was the draft, and back to discuss it are the two gentlemen who did our draft preview, Mr. Steve Saipa and Lucas Vlahos. Welcome to our uh, listeners who didn't join us for our draft preview, but I am back with Lucas Vlahos and Steve Saipa to talk about the 2016 Mets first-year player draft. So, guys, broadly, if you had to give this a, a letter grade, like it was you know, a school project with A being good and an F being a failure, where would you guys grade this draft? Uh, Lucas, let's start with you. Uh, I think I'd give it a, a solid B. Um Obviously, most of your draft impact is going to come from the top, and I was decently pleased with the top of their draft. Um, didn't love, I don't love Kay, but uh, considering what was available at the time, he's a pretty decent pick. Uh, that one start we got to watch, and I'm sure many Met fans watched Dunn pitch against Miami, was pretty impressive, even though he gave up a couple homers. Um, and then they basically got Will Craig, except they got him in the second round in Peter Alonso, very similar profile. Not as much of a track record, but um, I, I was pretty pleased with the draft. Steve, what about you? How would you grade it? I would give it a B minus, um, and that's not necessarily a fault of the Mets scouts as much as is a problem with the draft itself. I look at everyone who is drafted, and I don't really see necessarily impact players outside of Dunn. And that's really, you know, that that's not a problem with who the Mets drafted per se, as much as just the draft class itself this year was very low on high impact talent. Okay, well let's let's start at the very very top. So the Mets had what was it, the twenty second pick in the draft? Nineteenth, sorry, nineteenth pick in the draft, uh, and they chose Justin Dunn, a right handed pitcher from Boston College. Um, 20 years old, they uh, the the slot they're putting him in is about $2.3, $2.4 million. How do you guys feel about Dunn as the first-round pick for the Mets? Uh, I personally am not really a fan. Uh, he seems like a decent pitcher and a good kid. I'm not going to say that. You know, I, I do expect good things out of him, but... My issue, I guess, and it's not really an issue, but I feel that that if they wanted to go with a, if they wanted to go with college right-handers, at with their first pick, I feel like there were better pitchers that were available than Dunn. I feel like Dunn is too much of a project for a first-round pick at nineteen. Um. I feel like if you're going to be, you know, with that pick, you want a more complete player. And Dunn still has a lot of question marks and a lot of rough edges because of the fact that he was, you know, just a kind of nondescript reliever for his first two years out of college and then kind of burst onto the scene this year as a starter. 
Um, a lot of you know his fastball is very good and his slider is very good, but his curveball is very fringy and his changeup is kind of fringy. I would have preferred to have seen a, a pitcher who is more of a complete player with that pick than Dunn. I mean, does this bring up horrible memories of Eddie Kunz? <laughs> for uh, for Mets fans who have been following the draft for a number of years, or do you think that – do you guys think that he's going to stick around as a starter? I, I definitely think that he's going to stick as a starter. Um, he has, you know, he has the stuff and, and a lot of like, you know, a lot of the fringiness in his pitches are not because they aren't there. It's just really the fact that as a reliever, he never really needed to throw, you know, a third pitch or a fourth pitch. He never really needed a curveball or change up very much. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I think that he's going to be bad. He isn't. But I just would have, like I said, I, I think that there were other pitchers that were available that were more complete packages, and I would have preferred to have seen a more complete package. Okay. I, I'm actually curious, Steve, which pitchers or college pitchers would you have preferred? Um, looking at the guys picked between uh, Dunn and Kay, you've got uh, Dunning. Then uh, Sedlock, Birdie, Lauer, and I think that's it in terms of pitchers selected in between or starters selected in between the two. So who would you have preferred there? I personally would have preferred uh, Zoik, who was selected by the Blue Jays. I think two picks later. Um, that's such at, an eighty name. It is. Yeah, it, it was selected by the Blue Jays at twenty-one. And I also would have preferred, I think, Dakota Hudson, who was selected at um, 31 by the Cardinals, the last guy in the first round. Hudson, what did, uh, 34. Well, yeah, um, I, Hudson was higher, I believe, at the start of the draft, and he fell. I could see that one. I don't think I agree on Zoic because he is almost certainly a believer, not, probably not going to transition back to starting from what I've read, and that should bring up Eddie uh Coons, Cuns, however you pronounce it, memories. Uh, I'm really just not a fan of taking a reliever in the first round. Uh, as for Dunn, and it was only one start, I'm not a real scout, even though I pretend to scout sometimes. I was pretty impressed with this stuff. His fastball, when he when he had it, was had some serious arm side run. That's how he struck out Zach Collins, who was uh, the White Sox first round pick. The slider was pretty filthy. Um, I didn't feel like I saw one or two decent change-ups mixed in there. So uh, I, I'm, I think I'm a bit more optimistic on him. We'll see how he does uh, in Brooklyn the rest of the year once he gets some major league coaching. They'll probably only give him one or two innings at a time because he uh, doesn't have much of a track record of throwing lots of innings and he's coming off a full college season. But given the basis of stuff there and the fastball and the slider, I think he could be something special once he gets more professional coaching. Right, that my, that's that I think what you just mentioned about how he has very little uh, college innings. That is really my biggest gripe with his pick. His stuff is great, you know, and it assuming that he pans out, he'll be a very good pitcher. He'll probably be you know a, a mid rotation with kind of more of an emphasis on front rotation kind of guy, you know, two or three whatever. 
throwing random grades out there. <laughs> but but um, I just, I don't know. It, it makes me a little nervous that you have a guy with no real track record, stuff aside, not, not a very large track record and just so many questions, you know, can his body, you know, he's not the biggest guy, but it's not like he's a little person either. You know, can his body withstand the rigors of pitching a hundred innings? He's never pitched that many innings before. Can he throw over the course of even a, a, a few months, you know, can he regularly hit, you know, a hundred pitches per game. I think he's only done that twice. I think he's only thrown more than 70 pitches in a game, you know, only a handful of times. So these are, there'll probably be, there'll probably no issues. And I'm sure that he will go on to throw lots of innings and lots of pitches per game and be abused by our pitching staff, (laughs) our coaches at some point. But it just makes me kind of, extra cautious that these things are, are questions with the guy that was picked with that very first pick I mean, so early in the draft. If you watched the draft broadcast at MLB Network, uh, Harold Reynolds threw a Pedro Martinez comp out there. We all know that Harold Reynolds is the most scout-knowledgeable guy in Harold the world. Harold Reynolds is the biggest <laughs> idiot oh, he's, on that. Yeah, I know. Literally every time there was a pick, they'd all be talking. Harold Reynolds would throw out a ridiculous comp. They'd kind of nod, ignore him, and go back to their previous discussion. My friend and I, I don't understand were texting about it there. and saying, like, it's basically somebody on that works at MLB Network is trolling this, the scout guys and just, like, <laughs> wants to throw Harold in there because it's, it's terrible. Um, anyway, but let's let's move on from Dunn for a second. The Mets had a second pick in the uh, with the thirty first pick of the draft. They chose Anthony Kay, a left handed pitcher out of the University of Connecticut. Um, you know, I think people are enamored with the idea that the Mets got two Long Island guys, just because that's a fun little story. But in terms of talent, what do you guys think about Kay? I'm not the biggest fan of the K fan, uh, K pick, excuse me. Um, I mean, his stuff is okay. I mean, he's probably more of a back end rotation guy and he's a lefty. So that'll be, he'll probably be more than the sum of his parts. Um, and I think we also discussed this a bit on our pre-draft, uh, podcast, just the idea of taking a guy with more pitchability and less stuff. And then you think maybe this pitching pipeline we've developed can give him that, knockout slider and suddenly you have a guy who has pitchability with a fastball and a changeup and now you've given him a strikeout pitch and a slider so maybe that will work out my bigger gripe with k is how much he's been abused at connecticut they mean mm-hmm. to throw him 130 pitches 100 i don't know what his highest pitch count is but uh he's consistently gone on short rests thrown more than 100 pitches and that worries me uh i mean pitchers plenty of studies have shown that pitchers have a limited number of uh, pitches they can throw before their bodies break down. And with the workload he put in at UConn already, I wonder if that might come faster for him in the majors than another pitcher. Uh, my opinions on K more or less echo what Lucas said, especially about, you know, choosing the upside in the draft over, you know, the safe pick. And K has like a high floor, but his ceiling is, you know, moderate at best. He's kind of a mid-to-back rotation guy, and he's, you know, it's not a knock against the guy. He's he's put up decent numbers. Um, his stuff is okay, but he just is, you know, it's just an uninspiring pick, I guess. And I think, honestly, 
you could argue that a guy like Dunn, his floor could, I mean, obviously the floor of any of these, I hate the term floor because the floor said any of these guys blow out, but Dunn, you could say, if he doesn't work as a starter, becomes a lockdown reliever at the back of the bullpen. K, if he doesn't work as a starter, doesn't really have that bullpen option because he doesn't have blow, blow it by you stuff. And not, I'm not sure he'd work as more than a middle reliever if he can't make starting work. No, I mean, and his, you know, he's a three-pitch guy, you know, fastball, change-up, and a kind of slurvy kind of curve. So, I mean, he doesn't really even have right now the kind of pitch election that you'd want in, like, you know, your lefty one-out guy. Mm-hmm. Let's let's quickly go through the last two picks in the top 100. The Mets had uh, the 64th pick in the second round. They got Pete Alonso, a first baseman from Florida. Um, any thoughts on Alonso? It's a fine pick for what it was. At this point, now you're starting to get into, uh, you know, far down in, into the draft where you have all kinds of different talent and potential, you know, so it's not like there was, and you know, and it's not like there are many standout guys that are, you could say, like, this person is definitely better than the player. Um, he's kind of, you know, Alonzo, he's kind of, one-dimensional power first baseman. Um, he has a he's a three ten hitter in college, but his swing is probably not going to allow him to maintain that kind of average against better minor league pitching and certainly major league pitching. Uh, he draws work walks and he gets hit a lot. I don't know if he does that <laughs> intentionally or unintentionally, but that'll help with the on base percentage. But you know he's just. If he works out and he he can be a kind of you know low average, decent on base percentage, high slugging kind of first baseman, that's a win, obviously, and that's pretty much what his ceiling is. Yeah, and I mean at that spot in the draft, there's you even especially in this draft, there's not going to be a ton of impact talent available. Um, and I was decently pleased with the pick because they seemed interested in Will Craig earlier. That profile kind of disgusted us all in the first round, and they got a very similar profile. He hasn't had the track record or quite the same uh, level of stats as Craig has, but Alonzo's a similar guy. He's going to be a first baseman, just like Craig is. Um, so so if that was a need they were looking to fill or check just a box they were looking to check off in this draft, they filled it, and they didn't waste their first-round pick on it. So considering where the pick is, I'm pretty happy with it. And then closing out the top 100, the Mets had the 100th pick of the draft. Blake Tiberi from Louisville, a third baseman. Um, again, you know, I, I am I am not a – I don't follow a lot of college baseball, so these names mean absolutely nothing to me unless they're the, the first rounders. So tell me a reason I should be excited about or potentially excited about Blake Tiberi. Uh... Tiberi? Tiberi? To Barry. To Barry. Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I can't necessarily get you excited about him. Um, but Can you give me a, a, a morsel of hope for him? Um, well, he has. he's a good defensive third baseman. He definitely will stick at the position. Um, but the rest of his profile is kind of meh. You know, he has a kind of weird inside-out swing. Uh, he makes it work though, and with a little bit, you know, more refinement with that, he could have a legit plus hit tool, which is nice. But um, he doesn't really have much power right now, which is kind of concerning, especially if you're gonna have him at playing third base. 
he makes good contact, um, makes hard contact, but he has only a handful of home runs in over 200 at bats in leagues that use wood bats, you know, so mm-hmm. Cape Cod League, um, New England Collegiate League, things like that. So, you know, he, he's, he has a decent amount of home runs with the, with the NCAA um, metal bat, but... But so could I. Right, yeah. So will it translate with a wood bat? So far it hasn't. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it won't. Um, but, you know, we'll see about that. No, I'm, I'm skeptical of high contact, low power, middle infield, or corner infield, rather. Um, it sounds very Wilmer Flores-ish. You just make, make lots of contact, and you wind up swinging at some pitches you shouldn't, and from what I've read and the little limited video I've seen, it seems like he has a good feel to hit, but it gets he gets uh, ahead of himself sometimes, and he uh, loses discipline because he can get the bat, uh, the barrel of the ball, barrel, Jesus, <laughs> barrel of the bat on the ball uh, most of the time. So uh, I'm skeptical of that pick. I didn't love it. Wilmer, I think, is a good comparison uh, offensively. Although I think Wilmer has a bit more power than Tiberi does. Yeah, and Tiberi's also a left-handed swinger, I believe. So yeah. that, that that helps a little bit with platoon advantages. Um, <laughs> and, and he's a good defensive player. <laughs> yeah, that that too. I mean, Wilmer's okay. At, Wilmer is acceptable at third base, that horrible play on the Ryan Braun grounder notwithstanding. But, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you know, um, something that we tend to, we non-draft experts tend to forget about is that there are 40 rounds in the draft, and so the Mets drafted quite a few players. Is there anybody from the lower rounds you guys think was a steal or you think has real potential? And, you know, we don't have to be talking 39th round here. It could be, you know, fourth or fifth round. But is there somebody out there that when you saw the Mets drafted them and you did a little research began to pique your interest? I'll let Steve go first. One guy that looks intriguing to me, I think, is Colin Haldeman. He was selected with the 280th pick, which was in the ninth round. Uh, he's a big guy, 6'6", 220 pounds. Um, and he has uh, a, a plus fastball. It tops out at about 97. And he complements that with three other off-speed pitches, one of which is a slider, and that flashes plus at times, and a sinker. So uh, we'll see how his career goes pans out lucas who's uh, somebody for you uh so two guys one the first one was i mean not even that late uh colby mudmanzi which was their uh pick 117 in the draft um shortstop for arizona state he started for two years not a ton of straight line speed but as these guys like ruben Tejada have showed us you don't need straight line speed necessary to play short necessarily to play shortstop um and I've read different opinions on whether he can stick there. If he sticks there, he's got some feel to hit. He has some power to the pull side. Um, so even just uh, some feel to hit and a little bit of power, if you can play shortstop, that's uh, a worthwhile profile. And he put up some pretty solid numbers at Arizona State. Um, and then the one interesting prep guy that they took after the 10th round, it seemed like they were going to take a few more prep guys because they took a lot of uh, players that would probably be under slot, it seemed like, but then they only took one, that being Matt Cleveland, mm-hmm. another guy that really wants to wanted to be a Yankee. So that add that to Dunn <laughs> and Harvey on the team now. Um, 
So he went to Windsor, not not a ton of uh, really good coaching for him, but he's got, got a fastball. I mean, there's some potential there, and it's really, really only interesting because he's probably their most interesting prep pick. My God, he was born in 1998. Oh, yeah. I had already kissed girls and disappointed my parents by that point. Hey-oh. That's... I mean, uh... I... I had that that line of demarcation when I realized that Marcus Molina would be the last prospect older than I am. Just sad. It is a terrible feeling. It really is. Oh, it doesn't get any better either. Uh, so overall, <laughs> uh, looking at the the Mets system now that we've had this, you know, infusion of I mean, none of these guys have signed yet, but you know, this hypothetical infusion of forty-ish players into the into the system. Do you guys feel any better or worse about the Mets farm system? Where would you kind of rank them sort of top of the line, middle of the line, or, or you know, bottom rung right now in terms of uh, system depth overall? I'd I mean, probably go middle of the pack. Um, I mean, I, I like the Dunn pick, so I'm probably a bit higher on him than Steve. And Rosario's been impressive so far this year, so that pulls them up. Obviously, they lost Mats. They've graduated most of their other talent. Um, but I think between Rosario and Gazelman's uh, improvement, adding Dunn is a high upside guy, adding K is a more uh, high floor guy, uh, that keeps their system perhaps in the lower middle, so probably looking in the 20 to 15 range. But given the amount of talent they've graduated in recent years and the amount they still have in the low minors, um, I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. Yeah, if the Mets coming into the year had a farm system that was ranked maybe, you know, 20, you know, in the kind of back half, I think that they're closer to the front now, you know, between 15 and 20. Um, With the exception of Dunn, you know, I don't really see major upside guys being added through this draft. So most of the improvements in the system are really because of uh, improvements in players that have already been in there. And primarily Ahmed Rosario, um, Wilmer Becerra has has been having a, a pretty good year with his hit tool. Um, Zelman, you know, has has had a very good year as well. Um, so it's with the exception of Dunn, really, and and K kind of um, the farm system getting better is really a, a testament to coaching and the players that are already in the system as you know as opposed to guys being added in mm-hmm. uh steve you mentioned before how you just weren't overwhelmed by this draft class in general how many years would you say like out of you know out of five years how many years typically are really good draft years because it seems to me like i hear this all the time that every year is like, oh, this is not a great draft class and so how often is there a great draft class I mean, I really don't know. I don't, I couldn't tell you. Honestly, I don't think that they're really, you know, I don't think that it's scientific enough to really ever say that, you know, every X amount of years there's a good class. I think it, you know, just random luck of the draw. Well, how many years of, have you been, have you been really following the draft? Um, this is, this is, you know, Alex Nelson, who always did all of our draft coverage in years prior and who I'm not even halfway as knowledgeable as if if I was halfway as knowledgeable I would consider that you know an accomplishment mm-hmm. but um he's been handling that he's always handled that I've just kind of looked at players profiled guys that you know um 
the Mets could have selected in their first picks, you know, for mm-hmm. a couple of years now. And I think that also kind of skews things a little bit because I've always been looking at first round picks. That's you know, true. Yeah. And the Mets have had, you know, um, first half selections with their first round pick in their first couple of years. So the talent level of possible guys that the team could have been drafting, you know, in the last few years, with the exception of last year, because they didn't have a first round draft, thanks to Michael Kadire. But um, yeah, that that could skew things a bit for me personally. I feel like the last draft class that you could really say, um, and perhaps my memory is uh, failing me a bit since I, it's a long time ago, relatively. But 2010, I felt like people said was a pretty strong draft class, and it came out that way. When you had Harper, Tyone, and Machado at the top, Harvey, Grindall, Sale, uh, Yellick, I think, was in that draft. So um, maybe every five to six years you get one that's just, uh, you can point to and say, yeah, this is a very good draft class. Um, but this one, even at the top, didn't wasn't very good. Like Most years at least have a couple guys at the top that you say, all right, these guys are really good. This draft didn't even have that, as we saw with all the movement in the top five picks, even within the last couple of days of the draft. I don't think I saw a single mock with Moniac going first until towards the end of the process. Our crazy pipe dream of Groom dropping to the Mets almost actually did happen. <laughs> and Rutherford was even closer, but I know the Yankee. I was a little irritated at that, but uh, so it goes. Yeah. Well, before I let you guys go, uh, Steve, this is a question that came in via email that I think you're you're chomping at the bit to talk about. So this is from Tom. Tom says, "Hey guys, depending on right situation and our options at third base, uh, Ulieski Gurel." Am I saying that right? I think it's Gurriel. Seems like one of the best options to upgrade the team without trying to trade away prospects to the deadline. Do you think his body of work in Cuba translates well to the major leagues? Does this Mets team that is trying to get back to the World Series pay out to upgrade the team? Third base seems like the biggest need at the moment. Am I merely living a pipe dream here? Thanks for your time. Sincerely, Tom. Uh, Tom is living a pipe dream. (laughs) (laughs) Two things. Well... Multiple, multiple things. First is that, you know, we don't know what the situation is with David Wright. Um, If Gurriel was somehow magically signed, he's going to be a full-time player. Wright, obviously, if he's able to play, um, should be a full-time player. So because of Wright's injury situation and, and we don't really know how it is going forward, you're not, you know, I highly doubt that the team is looking to sign someone who's going to be, you know, a full-time player to replace Wright if Wright is able to get on the field. You know, he's always going to, at the very least, get a decent amount of platoon at-bats if, for whatever reason going forward, he's not able to be a full-time player anymore. And they're not going to sign Yuleski Guriel to be, uh, you know, a platoon player. But his his body of work um, definitely will stand up in the major leagues, you know, a lot of players in Cuba, they will have impressive batting lines, not because they're good hitters necessarily, but just because pitching in Cuba is very um, hit and miss. Uh, the way that the system works is that all the players on teams, for the, mo- for the most part, all the players on teams are amateurs from that city. 
So if you have, you know, take the industriales from Havana, for example, the capital city. It's a larger population. It's a larger pool of players that can potentially uh, play on the team. So the talent level is going to be uh, higher. If you take a smaller city, um, a small a team in a smaller you know city, you're going to have a smaller pool. So your your um, best players, you know, aren't necessarily going to be up to you know up to snuff. Uh, elsewhere but Goriel um, his scouting you know he has a excellent scouting report even at you know he's a little over 30 now but he still has uh, an excellent scouting report you know plus bat speed plus bat control so he's gonna probably be a 300 you know hitter give or take in the major leagues uh, he has a good eye you know and he, he knows how to take a walk so you know he could supplement the average he has plus power because of his bat speed, so you know he'll slug a decent bit. And then uh, even even at this age, he's uh, athletic and agile enough to still play third base, and he has a very very good arm. But the issue, um, aside for playing time, is is the fact that he's going to be expensive. You know, a lot of teams you know are are going to be vying for his services. And last winter or summer, whenever it was, uh, the uh, Hector Oliveira was signed mm-hmm. for uh, sixty-two million, and was given a, a almost thirty million dollar signing bonus. And you know he hasn't exactly worked out because of the field issues, but uh, Ulesky Goriel is a much better player, so he's going to get you know a, at least a similar amount of money, if not more, and. Not only, you know, can the you know the Mets not really be able to to figure out you know the playing time situation right now with Wright and all those questions, but just the financial aspect of it—that's really probably too much. Even if Wright was never going to be playing again, and they needed a full-time third baseman, it's probably still going to be too much for them. And I think also, if you're going for somebody to replace David Wright for the long term, you don't want somebody who's already over thirty to be that guy. Right. I mean, he hasn't really shown many signs of slowing down. Um, you know, at mo- you know, he's he's played second base uh, a few times during international competitions, I think 2 years ago or 3 years ago, whatever it was. But that isn't necessarily a, you know, that that not having seen him, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's slowing down and is will be uh unable to play third base it could just possibly mean that they needed a you know a second baseman right or they had a better defensive third baseman so mm-hmm. you can't really read as much into that as you might like to and then uh, my last question for the two of you guys we're going to be talking in a minute me and chris mcshane are going to be talking about the mets reacquiring mr kelly johnson and uh i know steve wants to pour one out for akil morris but um, for both of you guys, where did you kind of see – where do you see Morris's ceiling? Where do you think he fits in with the Braves? And do you think this trade will be instantly regretted or regretted over time? Morris's ceiling is probably – well, I should say his floor is probably Walter Johnson. Maybe <laughs> a little higher. I'm not really sure. And his ceiling, you know, you you can't actually see his ceiling. It's that high. <laughs> But in in all reality, you know, he's he's a fringe decent, you know, 
middle reliever in the minor leagues. He's just one of my guys, you know. So, I I think he's one of the, uh, what's the what's the word I'm looking for? I can't come up with it. But he he's the he's one of the cases you point to when you say don't scout the stat line. I mean his uh best he's got an okay fastball and his best weapon in the minors was his changeup and in the minors no one throws a, a even a okay changeup so most hitters especially at the lower levels just flail and he, his changeup isn't really that good so once once he get got higher as we saw in that one start with the blue jays he gets absolutely shellacked and he hasn't been particularly impressive uh as he's gotten promoted so i don't think we're going to really miss Akil morris that much at the same time, though, Kelly Johnson is Kelly Johnson. Exactly. Know, what I mean, is that? I don't understand why they decided to pick up Kelly Johnson again. Um, I mean, just go get Solarte or someone at this point. Um, because you're just, uh, hopefully, Johnson isn't on the team later this year. I mean, well, where, where does Johnson fit in once Wright comes back and they reinforce the bench? If Kelly Johnson is your bench reinforcement, that's pretty piss poor in this kind of season. I'm pretty sure that there are unsigned free agents this this far into the season that are probably better players than Kelly Johnson. Probably. You guys are harsh. <sighs> I mean, he was great last year, but he's been absolutely terrible so far this season. I mean, hey, he, he hit a double yesterday. And he got robbed of a homer, so... Yeah. Maybe just being with the Mets will revitalize him. He was with the Braves. Maybe it was just asleep the whole time, and I don't think we could... Really blame him too much if that was the case. <laughs> that That is a very fair point. And then any Kelly Johnson conversation, of course, goes in hand-in-hand hand with uh, Juan Uribe. And did you guys see what happened to Juan Uribe? Oh, did you even better? Did you see his quote afterwards? Wait, I did not see any of this, so fill me in. Oh, my God. Mike Trout hit a 106-mile-an-hour ground ball that <laughs> hit Juan Uribe in the man region, shall we say. Oh, boy. Uh, carted off, went to the hospital, and then he was taking batting practice or just throwing catch. I don't remember exactly what he does. And someone asks him, are you going to wear a cup now? Uh, to which he replies, uh, no, because the trainer doesn't have one in my size. Just <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay, Juan. Uh, Juan Uribe never change. That's such a terrible idea, playing third base without a cup. No, thank you. <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. <laughs> How do we get from the draft to this? Hey, everyone. Steve Schreiber here, and it's time for your This Week in SNY Minute on Amazing Avenue Audio. So Keith Hernandez made his triumphant return to the Mets broadcast booth on Thursday in Milwaukee. And uh, early on in the the bottom of the first inning, uh, Gary brought up the weather report for the weekend, which uh, in particular was a uh, sweltering 90 degrees on uh, Saturday. So with this information in hand, uh, Keith decided to mention that he forgot his sweater which wasn't a big deal, obviously, since it's going to be so hot, but it was cold and rainy in uh, New York when he left. This, of course, led to Gary uh, mentioning one of Keith's greatest utilities to the booth. Down the roof open. It's supposed to get really hot here this weekend. It's supposed to get 90 degrees Saturday. 
And it just misses outside. Bart's just been a shade off that outside corner and he runs a full count. Well, I'm glad it's hot because I didn't bring a sweater or anything and I left New York yesterday, Gary. It was cold and rainy. I know it was cold in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it got really chilly last night, especially as that game ran long into the 10th inning. I was very happy to have my sweater with me. The sweater vest, which I know that you really, really like. Well, I, I look to you for fashion tips. Yeah, what am I going to do? Look to Gil? Well, I, I love the ties. You've come a long way in the tie department. <laughs> Try and mix it up, Keith. <laughs> Try and keep you on your toes. So one thing we've we've really noticed this year is uh, the the jabs that uh, Gary and Keith and Ron have taken at Steve Gelbs, and you know we're sure they're uh, they're loving jabs, just you know because they've. They've been together now for for over a year as as a group, and you know they're gonna make fun of the the rookie or the young guy, you know, every once in a while. But just funny to hear the dynamic play out on the air. So that's all we've got today for your this week in SNY minute. Thanks for listening. My name is Steve Schreiber, and now back to Amazing Avenue Audio. One of the things that we have been speaking about internally at Amazing Avenue for the podcast is to try and get some more players on the show, specifically some minor league players, to talk about their experiences in the minors and maybe get to know somebody who in a couple of years will be a big star, but we got to talk to them way back when. And so we are thrilled to bring you an interview with Logan Taylor. Uh, Logan is originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can find him on Twitter at LoganReese36. And you're going to hear a lot more about him. So I'm going to shut up and let Chris McShane get to this interview. Take it away, Chris. Joining us this week on Amazing Avenue Audio is Mets pitching prospect Logan Taylor. He's currently playing for the AA Binghamton Mets. Logan, uh, thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Our pleasure. Um, I guess we want to start Major League Baseball's amateur draft this year just wrapped up. Um I kind of want to go back a little bit. You were taken in the 11th round by the Mets uh, in 2012. What's that experience like for a player? I think we see some reactions and everything every year, but you know what? What was that day like for you? Uh, it was it was crazy. It was a it was a dream come true. I mean, I went through a lot in my uh, two years in college and at my senior year of high school and some stuff going on, and I just didn't know you know when it was going to happen, if it was going to happen, and and uh, you know everyone, everyone tells you what they think. You're gonna go here, and we think about this there. But um, I just tried to do what I could, and then you know not pay too much attention to it. And then whenever the my name was called, and I was my phone was getting flooded with phone calls. It was uh, it was it was wild. It was awesome. Oh yeah, I, I can imagine. And you were uh, you were born and raised in Oklahoma, went to school there throughout, right? Uh, yes. Well, my born and raised there i went to junior college in texas my freshman year okay um and then i and then i went to eastern oklahoma state and got drafted out of there um down in southeastern oklahoma my sophomore year so uh in your years in the minor league system so far i'm curious i grew up in connecticut i couldn't wait to get to new york city i know obviously you know professionally that's the goal for Mm -hmm. you but uh you've gotten to play in a few different places brooklyn uh, Savannah, St. Lucie, now in Binghamton. What's been the best stop along the way, just in terms of a like place to live? 
Uh, as far as living goes, I I like living in Savannah a lot. St. Lucie was oh, was nice too. Um, but being in Brooklyn, that was probably the most fun as far as playing wise. I, it had a lot to do with it just being my first year in pro ball, and um, obviously the stadium there. Uh, if you've been there, is really nice. Tons of fans every night, and it was just kind of kind of uh, spoiled me a little bit because we haven't really been able to draw much crowds like that anywhere I've been since then. But um, that was probably the most fun year. Just being there, fresh out of the draft, I'm getting to play in front of a bunch of people in Brooklyn, New York every night. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that stadium is definitely unique. I mean, being right there on the ocean and, you know, there is that draw. It's sort of like from the rest of the city, it's so hard to get there. Uh, uh, but for people for whom it is local, it's like, you know, it is really easy. So it's kind of like the, a lot of them, I think, are Mets fans, but it also has that component of there's just the Cyclones being their own thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, you got off to a really good start there. You know, you, you were pitching out of the bullpen that year. You started the next season in Savannah. Uh, and then, unfortunately, that season was cut short by Tommy John surgery, which I think a lot of Mets fans are familiar with since, you know, it's just so common in general. And, you know, several pitchers who are on the major league team now have gone through it. Um, yeah. is, there, is there something you think – that fans and writers might not understand or or just might not know about going through that surgery and its recovery? Uh, I mean, I feel like it's such a common surgery now that everyone's got their speculations and what and what they think about it. But uh, it's just it's a it's a long road. It was a lot of a lot of ups and downs and just trying to battle through it. Kind of just like um, everything else uh, my baseball career has been. I feel like it's just part of the process that unfortunately a lot of especially a lot of Mets guys have had to go through that I know and um, a lot of guys that I've known that have just pitched for a long time they've had to go through it's just it's a tough process trying to go through it stay healthy stay positive because you don't get to see a field for um, over a year for some guys and it was right out I think right out a year for me before I was back pitching in Saint in Savannah and um, it's just it's it's a battle and then and some something a lot of people don't realize is even when you get back after that year, nothing really felt the same until it was pretty much two years out when I was halfway through the season in St. Lucie um, last year that everything started to kind of feel a little more normal again. Yeah. Now, is that sort of – is it just finding your mechanics and getting into a, you know, where you feel comfortable on the mound? Or is there is there a difference in the way you feel between starts as well, you know, or, or appearances? Uh when, when you're trying to find it with that. Yeah, it, um, it had, had a little bit to do with kind of routine and trying to figure everything back out, fresh start, what, what uh, your routine every day is. And then um, a big thing for me was just kind of my arm just kind of really getting back into full shape because, I, I mean, I was, in, I was in good shape as it was to get back on the mound when I came back, but um, nothing really felt the same. I, my fastball, guys were taking better swings at it than um, I was accustomed to, and then it wasn't moving nearly as much as it was um, whenever I was pre-surgery and stuff like that. So just kind of trying to figure out my game and um, just learning how to pitch all over again because you, you get a little mental mentally rusty after, after that year off too. So that was kind of another. It's just everything kind of comes together and arm strength, mental strength and everything just finally kind of kind of catches up to you after that like two year mark yeah 
Yeah, that that makes sense for sure. Um, so you come you come back. You're starting again uh, once you got back on the mound, and then you were again last year uh, in St. Lucie. And this year, you've been pitching out of the bullpen for Binghamton. So I'm kind of curious, to like, how does that come about? Uh, is that something the organization or team approaches you about? Do you go to them? Uh, you know, what what's that process like? Yeah, I was just kind of... Uh just kind of always been go with the flow whatever they want me to do is what I want to do I want to be out there pitching and I'm just competing to the best of my ability and then this year almost towards the end of spring training um, the organization pitching coordinator came up and told me that uh, they were wanting me to move to the bullpen and I told them that's fine I, I feel comfortable out of the bullpen I've I enjoyed it there in the past when I pitched there in high school and then in Brooklyn and um I've just kind of always enjoyed being that way. Feel a little bit more a part of the team, and I I just like being, you know, the thought of being able to go in there every day. But um, I was I was happy with it. I kind of I kind of knew that was a kind of an overall plan at some point. I didn't really know when it was going to come up, but um, yeah, when they approached me about it, I was I was ready to go. I was happy about it. Yeah, I I think Hansel Robles was a good example of someone you know who did very similar thing you know came up started 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 and then uh you know they switched him over when he was in Binghamton and and you know now we've seen him pitching at the major league level um so when you make that switch what changes uh you know are you throwing a different pitch mix now have you picked up any new pitch over the last season or two or anything specifically this year um thrown anything to the side to adjust to the role um, just a little bit mentally, it's kind of, it's a little bit different, um, different on you going out there feeling like you're only going to be out there for one, two, uh, three max, as opposed to going out there and just trying to compete for as long as you can and pitch into as deep as, as deep as your pitch count will let you into the game. But it's, it's definitely, I've, I've more relied on just like a fastball curveball mix this year, as opposed to in the past where I was, uh, like last year, I was relying on my changeup a lot. I haven't really got a good feel for that yet out of the bullpen and a little bit more effort in my delivery, but um, I, it's something that I think will come. I've just got to keep working on it and and uh, just trying to incorporate that back into my game. Yeah, yeah. it seems uh, I haven't had a chance to see Binghamton in person yet this year myself, but looking at the results, it seems like, you know, your strikeout rate is way up, and that's, uh, you know, that's always a good thing to see from afar. I imagine uh, I was I was never anywhere near great at pitching, but going back to you know high yeah. school days and all that, strikeouts are fun when you're on the mound. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like that's kind of um, just kind of something that comes a little bit easier when you're pitching out of the bullpen. You don't have to worry about as pitching to contact nearly as much as as a starter trying to get deeper into the games. And uh, you know a lot a lot of times late in the games you come in out of the bullpen and hitters are taking a little bit more often to kind of see what you um, see what you have and the pitches you're throwing and stuff like that. So that's kind of helped me a little bit, just trying to get ahead of guys and stay on top of them. I've had my struggles with that at times, walking a few guys, but um, kind of as the year goes on, I feel like I've got a little bit better at it and still got a little bit to go, but um, adjusting, adjusting somewhat well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so off the field, what uh... – you know what? What do you do 
what do you do for fun? What do you do in the off season? I know, you know, I know uh, off season stuff is basically conditioning for players, uh, you know, these days. But what's the kind of stuff that you enjoy when you're not, you know, focused on baseball? Yeah. Uh... In the off season, well, I kind of I work at a baseball facility and give lessons there, and I'm around that a bunch in the off season. And um, my little brother's a senior in high school, and he's kind of trying to f- further his career also. So I work with him a lot and just be around it and help him, talk to him about it. But just hanging out with family, um, I feel like I feel like baseball is almost year round, no matter if we're playing every day or if I'm off for four months. It's just something that's there every day, um, even in the off season, but. Uh, just hanging out with family, kind of being friends, spending as much time with them as, as I can because I know that uh, once the season hits and I report to spring training, I won't be able to see him for well, six, seven months. So that's kind of what I try and maintain as my my main focus whenever I'm back home. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've noticed from uh, your tweets uh, you're a big Thunder fan. I'm not, I'm not an NBA yeah. expert myself, but – but uh, I imagine that helps, you know. Is basketball the your second sport uh, in terms of no. in terms of actually, being a fan uh, or? Well, yeah. Actually, I was always a football growing up, but being from Oklahoma, I just always had to root for kind of surrounding teams as far as football, baseball, and all that goes. And basketball was never really my uh, – never really a sport for me. But then Oklahoma City, the Thunder moved there a few years back and – it's just kind of like everybody in Oklahoma kind of instantly became a, a big Thunder fan because, um, you know, there's no other there's no other pro affiliates besides you know some double A, double A triple A teams and stuff like that. So, um, they're about as about as popular as popular can get because it's a big, big sports state. So it was kind of it was ready for someone to finally step in. Didn't really matter what the sport was; they were going to get a lot of support. Nice. Well. uh I think that about wraps it up for, for me, but thank you again so much for coming on and, uh, you know, best of luck this season. We look forward to seeing you with Binghamton and then hopefully, uh, it, you know, I, most Mets fans don't live anywhere near, near Las Vegas, but <laughs> hopefully we'll see you here and then, uh, in Queens in, in the not too distant future. Well, thank you very much. All Thanks right. for having me on. And it was, it was a pleasure. All right. Anytime. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Welcome to the Weekly Stat. Last week we discussed the Mets' offense's struggles in general, uh, touching on their BABIP mostly, and how some more promising indicators from previous years didn't really apply this time around. This week I thought we'd focus in on a specific Mets hitter that's slumping, that being Michael Conforto. Conforto's very interesting case. He was shooting to the top of the fan favorite leaderboards as of March and April this season when he posted a 201 weighted runs created plus. He was basically the best hitter in baseball outside of Aledmus Diaz, Cardinals Devil Magic and all that. Um, but since then, the carriage has turned back, to, back into a pumpkin and no one has shown up with the glass slipper Conforto now has a 63, or posted a 63 weighted runs created plus in May, 
and so far has a negative 4 weighted bronze created plus in June. Uh, so pretty impressively horrible from Conforto since that hot start, and who knows how much of the issue is the wrist, how much of it is mental, how much of it is swing mechanical tweaks. Um, that's all stuff that we can't really know without being in the clubhouse, and even then being in, we're not in Michael Conforto's head. So, I thought it was worthwhile that to dig in a bit into what's ailing Michael Conforto, see if there's any obvious statistical reason why this is happening. And the guy still has a 105 way to runs created plus on the season because of that hot start, so the talent's still there, and with so many bets injured, they really need him to get going soon. They don't want to let the Nats run away with things. So, uh, the first thing you think of when a hitter hits like the uh, hits a sophomore slump, though this isn't quite a sophomore slump for Conforto, I'm not sure what the usual timeline on that is, but let's just call it that for now. Um, usually you expect pitchers to adjust somehow, adjust the pitch mix to the hitter, do something, and then it's up, the hitter, up to the hitter to adjust back. Just the chess game that is baseball. Um, but in Conforto's case, the pitch types haven't really changed by percentage uses. Usage, excuse me. Uh, hard pitches, that being fastballs, cutters, fastballs of either kind, were up 2% in May and down half a percent in June, this after a 56.8% usage in April. So, not like he's seeing a significant change in the number of fastballs he's getting. Breaking stuff took a bit of a jump. Uh, went up 4% from 268 to 31% usage uh, over the two-month span. Uh, while off-speed stuff, that being change-ups, spl- uh, I think the split fingers are counted in there, those sorts of pitches are down from 16.4% to 12.9%. So he's seeing about the same number of fastballs, more breakers, fewer change-ups. Um, but those changes aren't really that drastic. It's not as if they realize this dude can't hit sliders and just started throwing him uh, 50% sliders. It's just a more subtle change. So, not really enough to predicate a, a, the total collapse we've seen con- from Conforto. Um, so just to touch on his whiff numbers on these pitches real quick, um, it's gone from 4% whiffs to 103 on hard pitches. Uh, 5.3% to 12.5% on breaking pitches, and 22.4% whiffs to 35% whiffs on off-speed stuff. And considering that that's both the biggest jump and the biggest raw percentage of whiffs, it's odd that that usage has actually dropped. Um, But perhaps it's just being used more effectively. And to... The real stat I wanted to get here was the change in location profile to touch on how the pitches are being used more effectively. Um, So as Conforto came up, we heard about his good eye, and we saw that uh, both on display both last year and early this season. But lately it feels like he's consistently down early in counts, 0-1, 0-2, and then he just swings over something to strike out. And looking at the... Uh, location profile, you definitely see that reflected in the numbers. His own percentage increased from 32.7% in March and April to 37.7% uh, over May and June. That's a pretty big jump. He's getting 6% or uh, 5% more pitches in the zone. And, and more specifically, 
this is trend is even more noticeable with non-fastball pitches. So it's not that pitchers are now bearing their breaking stuff or their off-speed stuff. They're throwing it more in the zone, up from 22% in zone pitches to 35%. So pitchers are now challenging Conforto, not with fastballs in the zone, but with stuff that moves and stuff that's off-speed. Um, in response to this, Conforto's swing rate is up. He's swung now at 58% of the pitches uh, of these off-speed and breaking pitches in the zone uh, versus 48% earlier in the season. So he's swinging at these pitches that are generally harder to hit, and his whiff rate has doubled from 11% to 22%. So while Conforto's... The end game on Conforto's at-bats might be a curveball in the dirt or a changeup in the dirt that he's swinging over more, I believe the true problem lies with the fact that he's consistently behind because he's being challenged with these pitches in the zone, swinging more often at them, and connecting less often. And whether this is a failure to recognize spin or off-speed stuff or a mechanical flaw in his swing, uh, that's a question for someone who understands swing mechanics, not a lowly stati- statistician like me. But if we want to get back to uh, a Conforto that at least resembles the Mar- March-April version, he's going to have to adjust back and start hitting these in-zone, non-fastball pitches. And that's it for this week's Weekly Stat. <laughs> We welcome back Noel Purcell with another discussion of a Mets prospect. Of note, I don't mention Noel's name at the end of the podcast as having a Twitter to follow because it appears he deleted his Twitter? I don't know. I couldn't find it. Maybe he changed his username. I promise we'll have a Noel Twitter update for next week. So take it away, Noel. Hey, guys. So the prospect I want to talk to you about today is one people have been buzzing about for a good reason in Robert Kesselman. Um, Selman was a uh, 13th round pick in the 2011 draft out of uh, high school in California. Uh, he's 6'4", 200 pound righty, who recently got promoted to AAA Vegas. Um, he, unlike the, the tradition of Mets power pitchers recently, he is very much a command guy, um, focused largely on getting ground balls. Uh, that is really his bread and butter. His ground ball rate actually for this current season is ridiculous. It's 54.8% in Binghamton after 51.4% last year. The league average is 43.7%. And that's in line with his career numbers, which bounce between like 52 to 56, depending on the level. Um, so he generates a ton of ground balls, and he does that with a sinking two-seam fastball, uh, a big 12-6 curve, and he's working on his changeup, which has been better this year, for sure. Um, in bingo this year, uh, he pitched he pitched 90 innings there last year, had decent results, uh, not great, but this year he had a 2.71 ERA with a 1.085 whip. Uh, a three plus to one strikeout to walk ratio uh, in 11 starts. And 
he really continued up his game. Obviously, the ground ball rate helps, and now he's going to Vegas. Uh, he got promoted, um, and he's made one start there. He had one in his first start. He got blown up for nine runs, five earned in three innings, but. Hopefully that's not indicative of things to come. Um, he's probably the best pitching prospect uh, in the upper levels of the minors the Mets have right now, and it's not particularly close unless you really like Gabby Y. Um, yeah, uh, hopefully he will be at worst a reliever, but really seems like his floor will be back end of the rotation type guy. His ceiling's not much higher than that, but it'll be a very valuable asset to have around. And two weeks ago, I got a, a tweet at me from someone named Marco. And Marco said, I just realized now that Ronnie Cedeno is playing in Italy for Bologna. Material for the next Forgotten Mets episode. That's a great idea. So our own Brian Renzi, who recorded this in Dubai where he lives. I didn't. I had no idea. I, his time schedule always seemed off from mine when we'd email him things. I never knew. He's in Dubai. It's truly an international affair, Amazing Avenue. And so uh, Brian took the time to talk about uh, Ronnie Cedeno. So here you go. Enjoy. Welcome to Forgotten Mets. I'm your host this week, Brian Renzi. On a tip from podcast listener Marco DeLuca as to the whereabouts of this player currently, we are doing this week on Ronnie Cedeno. Ronnie Cedeno was a Met for one year, year 2012, and as such, he did not exist as a Met to me because I didn't watch the Mets at all in 2012 in a personal strike against the team with uh, not offering Jose Reyes a contract the previous offseason. And uh, so, yes... Uh, this came at great personal expense, missing year of Dickie, the Santana Nono, and Harvey coming up. I saw highlights of all these things and kept up on AA on it, but uh, I did not see Ronnie Cedeno play personally. So I did a little research into him, and um, yeah, so I, knew Ron- I only know Ronnie as the enemy. Right, because I only saw him play on other teams against us, and I guess, uh, you know, as a supposed replacement in a way for for Reyes, as he was signed in that off season, he, he was signed to play utility infield, short, second, and third, uh, and he he actually started off pretty good in April before a strained intercostal landed him on the DL. He came back just in time the second week of May, as Ruben Tejada had just gotten injured himself, so Cedeno was installed as the starting shortstop for a little over two weeks, uh, only going 12 for 53 at the plate, but walking eight times, which would be which would turn out to be about half of a season total. But on May 29th, he hurt his calf. His replacement that game at short, Justin Turner, got injured as well. Later, the same game. So, you know, cue the LOL Mets smarmy comments from people like me, and they're worried about Reyes getting hurt. Cedeno was out for a month, um, but he got it going late summer. Uh, His best series came against the Giants when July turned into August. He hit a two-run double against Madison Bumgarner, which helped 
the Mets win over the Giants, the opener of four game, that four-game series. He also had three hits and five RBIs and a 9-1 drubbing of Barry Zito. Uh, August turned out to be a very good month for him overall, and by the time August was done, he had a nice line of 287, 362, 441. That's uh, pretty smooth. Uh, unfortunately, there was September to play, and he ended up going three for his last 26 over his final 15 appearances, and the Mets lost every one of the games he appeared in. He also finished on an 0 for 10 skid. Uh, that dropped his season numbers to 259, 332, 410, and 186 plate appearances. But overall, for him, that might have been his career year. Um, as a major leaguer, he might have his best year as a Met. He had his 741 OPS was a career high. He had a career best in slugging. He had the highest OBP in a season with at least 100 at-bats. He had his third highest batting average ever. Total Zone said he was an excellent second baseman and a slightly below average shortstop, so it seemed like the Mets got their money's worth that year from him, uh, but they opted not to sign him uh, and going into 2013. So from the beginning of 2013 to spring training 2015, he bounced around six organizations, traded once and released three times, um, and his contract was left to expire the other times. Uh, when he didn't make the Giants out of the Cactus League in 2015, he was sent to AAA and played a half the year there, putting up Ronnie Cedeno-like stats before getting released at midseason promotion time. Uh, this is the life, I guess, of you know uh, early 30s utility man sometimes. He went to the Mexican League at that point, and then winter ball in Venezuela this past offseason, and now at age 33, has caught on in the Italian Baseball League with Unipol Bologna. And not just caught on, he's caught fire. All right, right now, through 85 plate appearances, his line is 342, 400, and 513. That 513 slugging percentage tops in the entire Italian Baseball League. He's third in batting average for people who've Got at least 60 at-bats, and he is fourth in OPS. Um, those figures are helping along the top-scoring offense in the league. Bologna, the team he's playing for, won the championship two years ago and lost in the finals this year, uh, this past year. So they're looking to reclaim their former glory. Uh, not to blow all this out of proportion, the league is super small. Eight teams, uh, eyewitness reports of attendance in the low hundreds for a game. Old rundown stadiums. Actually, sounds kind of charming. And Ronnie gets to live in Italy. I mean, the food tourism there is amazing. Uh, if you're asking yourself how good can pasta really be, um, yeah, you haven't been to Italy, so check it out. It is worth it. Totally worth a trip just for the pasta, let alone all the amazing other food. But, of course, Italy being Italy, there's a bunch of unnecessary bureaucracy in the IBL involving selecting a starting pitcher. Uh, according to Wikipedia, in any given three-game series between the two team between two teams, the first game, anybody from anywhere can pitch for either team, i.e. foreign imports. In game two or three, an EU pitcher may be a starting pitcher, but there needs to be at least one game in the series that an Italian-raised pitcher, or one that's been in the league at least six years, starts as the pitcher. And whatever game number in the series that 
that Italian pitcher starts in, all subsequent starting pitchers for that team must also be Italian. Are you confused? Well, welcome to Italy. Don't expect many helpful signpostings of any kind. And of course, there's limits on EU foreign, foreign-born players, non-EU foreign-born players, uh, required number of Italian players on the field at any time, etc., etc. But anyway, if you want to follow Ronnie Sedanio's progress, they've just started keeping tabs on the Italian League on baseball reference. So you can check in with him there and see uh, if he keeps up this uh, epic hot streak of his. Uh, so keep raking, Ronnie, and um, have some real gelato and burrata for me. Uh, this has been Forgotten Mets, and I've been your host, Brian Renzi. Buongiorno, and I will see you next time down Hazy Memory Lane. This is Brian Renzi again. Uh, I just had to give out some last advice to Ronnie Sedano that I neglected earlier. Ronnie, if you are ever in Naples, go to Cafe Mexico near the train station, the Shecorado. There is the best coffee beverage I've ever had in my life. Coffee culture in Italy is wonderful. It's the way it should be. In and out. Um, also, Mucci Brothers in Tuscany. I mean, their range of amazing cured meats, wild boar salami, etc., etc. Oh my God. So yeah, Italy, not just pasta. There's so much to put in your mouth. It's wonderful. Um, yes, enjoy yourself and everybody else. Have a good week. Hi, my name is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today I'm going to talk about the Kelly Johnson trade and why, why, how it frustrated so many fans. At the same time, it was a move the Mets had to make. On June 8th, the Mets traded their 23-year-old right-handed pitching prospect, Akil Morris, to the rival Atlanta Braves in exchange for Kelly Johnson, a player that played really well for them last season, or at least really, really well by Kelly Johnson's standards, when the Mets traded a couple of pitchers for him and Juan Uribe at the 2015 trade deadline, or at least a week before the trade deadline when they were in dire offensive straits, needed a kick in the butt offensively, and they got two guys who, while they weren't superstars, they were players who were upgrades at positions where the Mets needed them. And that looked like a really nice deal at the time that eventually got overshadowed by the UNS Cespedes deal, but at the time it was a deal that had to get done. So, a reason that fans don't like the second Kelly Johnson trade is that the Mets could have probably just signed Kelly Johnson to a contract in the offseason instead of having to give up another arm for him. While that is true, when the Mets made the deal, they factored in, or they did not factor in, the sunk cost of not signing Kelly Johnson. In economics, the sunk cost principle is basically means that you can't go back in time and undo something that was previously done. When you make a move, or in this case, when you make a deal, you have to factor in the current landscape and not anything that happened in the past. The Mets couldn't undo not signing Helly Johnson. They had to evaluate the team as it is now with Wilmer Flores 
and Ty Kelly playing third base and David Wright out with a herniated disc in his neck. And that landscape, while Ty Kelly was starting to play nicely, it just hit his first major league home run and gotten his first major league hit. It demanded someone like Kelly Johnson who could provide veteran stability and give the Mets some consistent production at third base for as long as David Wright is out and also come off the bench to pinch hit. He can do a lot of things that the Mets need. And while they, it would have been nice if they had signed in the offseason because they knew that David Wright's health was going to be an issue, or at least they should have known. They should have done that before, but that's all sunk cost now. They make the deal. Akil Morris is out. Kelly Johnson's in, and the team is a little better than it was the week before. Morris is a sentimental guy to give up for many fans because he's been a prospect for so long. He's been playing in the Mets organization since 2010. He's a right-handed reliever who walks a bunch of batters. He has really good strikeout rates in the minor leagues, but he's working as a relief pitcher in double A. He's walking way too many guys. And he's just an arm that's easy to replace in the MLB draft that happened right after the Mets traded him away. The Mets were going to need to make some changes in their system anyway with the influx of new talent. So Morris was a guy they were probably looking at and said, we don't really trust this guy to be a reliever in the major leagues with the way he walks so many guys. We already have Hansel Robles to throw really hard and have issues with walks and struggle in the seventh inning sometimes. So I'm feeling like the Mets felt Akil Morris was very expendable. He's not likely to be a guy unless he totally corrects his walk issues and becomes an amazing closer. That is in a really low percentage of outcomes for him. I don't see the Mets missing him the way they might mess Miss Michael Fulmer, the pitcher they gave up for UNS Cespedes, who's doing so well for Detroit right now. Of course, we would probably all want to do that trade over anyway, even with Fulmer pitching the way he is. I think the Kelly Johnson trade will turn out the same way. And if fans think about it the way the Mets did, or at least the way I think the Mets did, with sunk costs factored in and just looking at the right here, right now, and not worrying about what the writers will say or what critics will say about them making the same move for the same player two years in a row, then it looks like a deal that makes a lot of sense. And I hope that's how fans think about it. And hopefully Kelly Johnson will continue to help the team the way he did over the weekend in Milwaukee when he was playing for the injured Neil Walker and hit a couple doubles and looked like the last year's Kelly Johnson instead of the one that was struggling this year with the Braves. So, hopefully the trade works out for the Mets. This has been Aaron York for Made in Amity Audio. I am joined by Chris McShane, and we're going to be talking about the emails that you all sent. So thank you all for emailing us. Please continue to do so at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Now, we just heard Steve and Lucas talk about uh, a potential third base t- 
target for the Mets, but we're going to talk about their current third baseman. Um, well, their current utility guy playing some third, you know, we're talking about Kelly Johnson, and this email comes from Calvin, and he says, uh, I am here today reading that the Mets traded a kill Morris for Kelly Johnson, and I am a bit perplexed. It's not that I rate Morris highly or anything like that, and I'm not necessarily upset about picking up some major league depth in the infield. It's better than relying on Ty Kelly and or Eric Campbell. I just really can't believe the club has traded with the Braves two years in a row for the same player. It's just baffling. Is this a lack of foresight? Is it a lack of creativity? I would say it's a bit of both. I think it was more than a high likelihood that David Wright would spend time with the DL this season. It was also proved last season you cannot expect Eric Campbell to be an adequate bench piece over a full season. And you had Kelly Johnson on your roster already last season, so it's weird to let him go only to trade back for him again. I know this is a meh move. I just get a sour taste in my mouth trading within the division again for the same player two years in a row. Anyway, would love to hear the podcast take on this trade. Thanks, Calvin. Well, Chris... What do you think about this? Is this a lack of foresight, a lack of creativity, or is there just an inescapable magnet bringing Kelly Johnson back to the Mets? <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit weird, right? I think every point that Calvin makes is a good one. Uh, you know, it's a guy who didn't cost a lot of money. He was there for the playoff push. You know, one of the things that sort of got written about a lot and talked about a lot, and I think it was justified, was that getting him and Juan Uribe on that team and knocking players who belonged in AAA back down to AAA uh, was an important part of what they did late in the season. So it was weird that they didn't bring Johnson back. Like, going into the offseason, you know, they obviously knew what they were going to do with Ruben Tejada. Yes. Right? I mean, we, we saw that he was tendered a contract, and I guess thought, oh, all right, Ruben Tejada. But... Knowing what they knew, it, it's a little weird that they didn't bring him back. Uh, and I, when I wrote about it, I think the day before the second Kelly Johnson trade happened, either a day or two before, he was one of the guys who seemed like you know sort of an obvious target. And we talked about that series of players a little bit last week. And I said at the time that you know it would sting a little bit to trade for a guy from a division rival two years in a row. So I fully understand that point, but I think I still go back to like, eh, it's it's a kill Morris, you know. Like that's probably gonna. I'm gonna guess based on the fact that they gave him up here, he was gonna be the next guy who would be DFA'd, and given the Braves complete ineptitude on the field this year, <laughs> they probably would have gotten him uh, when he hit waivers. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. Um... To me, this is less about David Wright than it is about Lucas Duda. That, yes, the Mets probably thought that Wright would spend a fair amount of time in the DL this season. But I think that everybody expected Wilmer Flores to be the third baseman in that instance or to move Neil Walker over. Or, you know, I think there were lots of options if Wright hit the DL. I don't think anybody was necessarily thinking that Wright and Duda would hit the DL at the same time. Because what that did was that made Wilmer Flores not just the third baseman, but also, you know, kind of responsible for first base a little bit as well. And with Darno going down, and with the team slumping in the way they are, I think that any injection of major league talent was going to be uh, an improvement over 
you know, as as Calvin mentioned of Ty Kelly and and Eric Campbell, and so. You know, I think that all those factors led to Kelly making a lot of sense for the Mets, especially because Kelly is a very versatile player. He can play first, he can play second, he can play short, uh, short in a real pinch, although I wouldn't want to see that. He can play third, he can play a little bit of left field. So he, he is a player that, that brings some depth, even if he's not going to be playing for you every day. Uh, what I think is especially frustrating about this is you know who was the who was the twenty fifth man on the Mets roster opening day? Was it Campbell? Uh, no, I don't think he actually made the opening day roster. But that might let, let's look back. It was the they had the weird the the really weird and stupid schedule to mm-hmm. start the season. Right, the uh, game day off game day off day off game. Yeah. My point being, I think whoever the 25th man on that roster was is probably a worse baseball player than Kelly Johnson. And Kelly Johnson could have been brought back cheaply. And so if if there was even an inkling that you might need to go out and get somebody like that, I don't know why they didn't do that from the get-go. Although maybe the argument is that these type of guys are always available. And yeah, they- it, could, it could be. I think technically, I'm looking back, I think technically it was Campbell okay. who, who was on... I've, I there's some uh, like I feel like that was a joke at the time, and when you looked at it, I think he didn't actually make the opening day roster last year. Okay, but then he did this year. He always comes back. Yeah, and he seems like a totally fine person. But Absolutely, that's one of those. It, Silicon Valley did a a good bit on sort of having to qualify somebody. If you if you don't watch the show, I'm going to just endorse it right now. Okay, I've been meaning to start watching it so. Yeah. So for a situation where every time you talk about Eric Campbell, you have to say he seems like a good guy, like I just did. <laughs> they they shorten it down to a a little acronym and and eliminate saying that. So, anyways, what is their acronym? Ah, oh, what was it? Oh man, I <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, trust trust me. If you don't have HBO, I don't know. I, I I have nothing. You can't have my HBO Go password. I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, if you do and you haven't watched the show, and you start like halfway through the third season, you're going to go. Oh, I remember hearing that on the podcast. <laughs> okay, that's my really timely reference here. But yeah, he does. He seems like a fine person, and uh, and and a fine AAA ball player. Um, yeah, but you know. Yeah, I mean, is the Johnson thing a little weird? Yes. Is it a little bit sad? Yes. Is it a little bit perplexing? Sure. I can't get too worked up over it, though, because they gave up a kill Morris. And he, as you said, if he was going to be a, an important member of the Mets bullpen, he wouldn't have been traded away for Kelly Johnson. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a... You know, it's not a knock on him, and you never know. You know, you see guys who hang around in the minors for a long time and turn it around when they're – because he's only 23. Uh, But you see guys who turn it around when they're 25, 26, 27. Maybe that happens with him down the road. Everybody who's seen him pitch a lot uh, and written about him has not forecasted that, you know, and that doesn't guarantee that it won't happen, but – 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, it, that point was certainly made in the question that it is only him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I agree with that. I agree it's a little bit weird, but... I, you know, looking at it, Kelly Johnson signed in early January. So it's not like he was signed five days after the season ended. Mm -hmm. And early January, they probably knew that Ruben Tejada was still around, but not going to make it to the opening day roster. And they didn't know that Cespedes was going to be a part of the team yet. And not that Kelly Johnson... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't think that his blockbuster contract would have blocked uh, Cespedes? Uh, probably not. But <laughs> but if you're trying to go with we have 25 major league players or uh, the pitching side's fine. So we have you know 13 major league position players on the roster. It's not like they had Cespedes yet. So I could you know we can say all right, Ruben Tejada would have had Campbell's slot, but Cespedes also wasn't on the roster yet. And as you mentioned, you don't think of Johnson as an outfielder, but you know he he could be in a spot where maybe he plays once a week in a corner outfield spot against a right-handed pitcher or something. You know, it, Granderson and Conforto are both lefties, of course, but you never know how things are going to turn out. Yeah. As a Mets fan of a certain age, I always like to have a Joe McEwing type on the team, a guy that can play a little bit of everything if you need him to. And Johnson seems to be pretty close to to that type of player at this point in his career. So yeah. I have no problem having him on my team. I just uh I, I completely understand the the weirdness around it. Yeah, yeah, it's it is. It's just weird. Yeah. Uh now we're gonna get to our second and final email, and this might be my favorite email of my era as podcast host so far. This is from someone named Cameron. Hey, guys. Hope all is well. I recently started listening to the podcast, and I'm in a situation I was wondering if y'all could help me with. See, this baseball season is when I realized I really love the game, but I don't really have a team to root for. I like the Rangers, but that's mostly because of their close proximity to me as I live in Louisiana. I discovered that my mom is a huge undercover Mets fan, so I decided, hey, if they're good enough for Mama Bear, they're good enough for me. I know that they've had recent success, and I don't want to seem like a bandwagon fan because it honestly has nothing to do with it. So with that said, what are the key things or moments at the Mets I should look into and know so I can seem less like a bandwagon fan? Also, are there any Mets-based Twitter accounts I should follow? Thanks for answering, and go Mets. First of all, it's let's go Mets. If you want to, that, that was my first <laughs> note for this question as well. If you want to sound like an authentic Mets fan, let's go Mets. Yes. Um, that's step number one. And no, no, no sound in the syllable, in the in the beat, in the note, in the pause. You might hear. I think it's sort of reduced a little bit, but you might hear Mets fans throw in an extra noise after "Let's go Mets." Mm-hmm. Don't do that. No, don't do that. Uh, um, I mentioned to Chris before we started recording. I wish I knew how old Cameron was. Because that would slightly change my answer to some of this stuff. Like, for instance, you know, I was born in 82, so I have a a working knowledge of the 86, 88 teams. But aside from very vague memories, I wasn't watching baseball every day at that age. But, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s teams, that's when I was really, that's when I was at maybe my most rabid 
state of fandom from, you know, 99 through the present day. So, you know, if you're a man like me in your early to mid 30s, that's that's an acceptable range. If you are, you know, closer to 50, well, then maybe you need to know a little bit more about 69 and 73. If you are closer to 20 or 21, then I think as long as you have a passing knowledge of sort of the, the big, like the Mount Rushmore players, as well as the last five or six years of Mets history, I think you're you're pretty okay. Um, what say you, Chris? What do you think? So there, there's no shortage of great stuff about the Mets, although they have not won that many World Series or, or pennants overall, even though they are coming off a year that they just won one. I don't know if Cameron was watching last season, mm-hmm. uh, but I guess well, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit in terms of the timeline. Uh, for an overall history of the team, Howie Rose's book is probably an excellent place to start. Uh, Absolutely. It's a, it's a fairly short book, and you know I've, I've followed this team as long as I have had a memory, and I'm 31 right now. Uh, and I learned plenty of stuff reading Howie's book. Uh, so his book, uh, Greg Prince's books, both the one, uh, both Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, which is, you know, a, a much longer, more general Mets book. Uh, and then his, uh, his book, Amazing Again, from last year, you know, detailing sort of the, the ebbs and flows of the 2015 season. Those are three books that I would say you can check out uh, in terms of specific things to be knowledgeable about. Uh, the 1986 Mets, that DVD box set is definitely worth your time and money. And it's probably a lot cheaper than when I got it, uh, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago. Um, I would have recommended for 86 also uh, Jeff Perlman's book, The Bad Guys Won. Oh, yes, of course. That's a great primer on the 86 season and really really fun yeah uh brush up on the details of bobby bonito's contract and then don't make any jokes about it yeah <laughs> uh that that's some advice you'll see some jokes about that every year around uh, just a few weeks from now uh you might laugh the first time if this is new to you but trust me it'll keep happening every year and it stops being funny uh what else i would recommend um Another book here that if you're going to want to really understand sort of what Mets fandom is like in the bad years as well as the good years, I would recommend The Worst Team Money Could Buy by Bob Klappish and John Harper. Uh, Both writers have somewhat descended into parody of themselves by this point in their careers in 2016. But in terms of a look at – it was the 1992 Mets – it was um, a team that was, again, the Bobby Bonilla contract the first time around started in this book. And it's just a really good look at when a good team gets desperate. And I think desperation is part of any Mets fan's life, unfortunately. So yeah. I would recommend that book for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a lot of recommended reading. Yes. Um, in terms of Twitter accounts, I mean I, at Chris McShane at Brian is an app. I would start yeah, there. Yes, <laughs> I, I would say uh, I at the risk of forgetting to name anyone specific. 
because there are a lot of good ones. Um, you can go on my account. I, I don't follow a million people, but there are plenty of good Mets fans in there. Um, so, and that's all, you know, you can on Twitter, you can see anyone who everybody follows. Yeah. There's also, uh, I'm trying to pull it up now. I'll, I'll pull it up and put it in the show notes. So Cameron, go, go read the show notes for this episode. Uh, Steve Schreiber did a post the end of last year about Twitter accounts every Mets fan should follow. And, oh yeah, that's right. And so that's probably a really good place to uh, to start. Uh, just follow all the people on that list. Yeah that that that's a good jumping off point. Um, I know Andrew Vizano of SNY uh-huh. TV slash Mets blog. Um, I think he maintains public lists that have, you know, Mets fans, uh, Mets players, that sort of stuff. You know, I mean, my favorite thing about Twitter, I think, is that it's sort of what you make it. Right. Uh, so if you want to see what every minor league player tweets on a regular basis, knock yourself out. That's not what I do. But Chipotle in the gym. Yes. And I, hey, I'm, I am a Chipotle fan. I can relate. But... <laughs> But yeah, I, I hope that's a good introduction. I mean, I think if you even if you read like two of the books that we recommended and follow five of the people that you find, yeah, it, it'll be a good start. And then I have a couple more kind of outside suggestions here. Yeah, um, if you one of the great gifts to Mets fans, and if you don't have an MLB TV account, you, you don't live in the area, you should probably get one. Uh, or if for some reason your local cable provider has SNY when there's a rain delay or a rain out SNY will show a Mets classic. Yes. Watch a few Mets classics and that will probably help you a little bit too. And um you know there there are certain names that you should just definitely familiarize yourself with. Uh you know Tom Seaver is the best pitcher in Mets history in terms of an overall career. Mike Piazza probably the best hitter in Mets history. You know, but you should also be familiar with a couple of the big names from each of those championship seasons. You know, Jerry Kuzman, uh, John Matlack, um, Nolan Ryan, Keith Hernandez, uh, obviously Keith and Ron. We hear in the broadcast all the time, so you can't forget those guys. Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry. Um, who are some other, I mean, you know, current Mets, David Wright, obviously. Uh, everybody should know Ari Dickey because Ari Dickey's the best. Uh, you should be aware, June 1st, uh, 2012, the only no-hitter in Mets history, um, thrown by Johan Santana, Jose Reyes, um, who are other Mets I'm forgetting that are sort of those Mount Rushmore Mets? Uh, if we're going back to the late 90s a little bit, John Olerud, Edgardo uh-huh. Alfonso, um, who else? Benny Agbayani? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Pedro Martinez mm-hmm. obviously wasn't still in his peak when he was with the Mets, and he wasn't always healthy, but especially early in his Mets tenure, yeah. he was very, very good. Carlos Beltran. Yes. And and learn to love Carlos Beltran. Ignore that, the last pitch of the 2006 season. Love right. Carlos Beltran. Or properly contextualize it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which, which By which I mean... And David Wright summed it up well uh, in, in a quote several years later. But, you know, he said, we wouldn't have been playing in a Game 7 if it wasn't for Carlos Beltran. Um, in terms of, I, I was thinking, 
a little more actually broadcast booth. Uh, whether you're watching these games on SNY or you're listening to them on WOR, um, we're spoiled by great broadcasters for this team. Best broadcasters, yeah. You know, it's funny. Like, I don't always agree with everything that Gary, Keith, and Ron say. I often disagree with some of the things they have to to say about the game and, you know, ways that we think about it and evaluate it. But, man, I having MLB TV, aside from throwing on, you know, Vin Scully and maybe one or two other booths that are good, there's a lot of boring broadcasters out there. Like, I, you, you might not, you know, if you're new to the game – I guess uh, your opinions of it can be shaped by any number of things. But uh, if you, you know, if you listen to Gary, Keith and Ron, even if you don't think exactly the way they do, they are so much more entertaining than everybody else. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I do during spring training is I, uh, (laughs) if I'm trying to fall asleep, I'll put on MLB network because they always have spring training games on late at night during spring training, and I try and see if I can make it a full inning without falling asleep because <laughs> the broadcasts are just absolutely terrible. Yeah. So, yeah, we are spoiled. And and that's been the case for a long time. Certainly brush up. Uh, you know, I, I wish MLB made more of this stuff available, and part of it, it's a mix of things, uh, and it's not just on the league, but anything you can find that includes Ralph Kiner, Yes. Uh, you know, familiarize yourself with Bob Murphy and Lindsay Nelson. Uh, and Lindsay Nelson. Yeah. It, it's, you know, you, I think it's hard to absorb a broadcaster when you're not living with them on a right. regular basis right. for years. Uh, but, you know, you can kind of, if there's any opportunity to go back and listen to that stuff, those guys are great, especially Ralph. And, and that's mostly because, you know, he he lived uh, later into my life than than the other two did. So I just heard him a lot more. But like, man, he was he was funny. He sometimes said things that were really silly. Uh, <laughs> sometimes they were unintentional. But he was he was a good analyst. You know, it's sort of a thing that people come back to is, you know, if Ralph Kiner was judging your swing, uh, you know, he turned out to be right a lot. Yes, uh, you know he, he just he had a knack for for broadcasting, watching, seeing the game, and man, he was a little more progressive in his thoughts on on statistics and everything. You know, he might not have been you know reading out of the Fangraphs glossary, but I think the way he approached the game and thought of hitting, he was probably ahead of his time. Uh, Absolutely. So. We've given you so much stuff, Cameron. I'm sorry. We've overwhelmed you. <laughs> I think, though, overall, one of the things I really like about being a Mets fan is I feel like Mets fans are not very judgmental about the fan base. I mean, yes, you're always going to find snobs everywhere, but I feel like in general, when you go to a Mets game or, you, or you're talking about the Mets with people, because we're a team that is often not that great and hasn't been the front-running team for a long time. When you say you're a Mets fan, people really respect that. And they they know that you're not jumping on the bandwagon. And so I think it, as long as you're not trying to pose yourself as 
the supreme and all-knowing Mets fan, other fans are going to embrace you and they're going to help you along that path. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you saw a little bit of it in the playoffs last year where, you know, certain certain groups or people might try to sort of set a, a bar for, you know, whether or not you had been along for the whole ride. But screw that. If you want to be a Mets fan, you know, even if you do want to be a bandwagon Mets fan, that's fine. Show up at the stadium, make some noise. If you're living in Louisiana, you know, make some noise from there. Uh, you know, there's, there's not, if you encounter judgment like that, uh, don't worry about it. Yeah. The other thing I would say is if you, uh, you know, I, I know that Louisiana isn't exactly a hop, skip and a jump from a major league ballpark, but if you get a chance to go to a game when the Mets are on the road, uh, I think there's something really fun about being a, a fan rooting for a team on the road. I think you. I think you get a lot of. I know, and, and a lot of baseball fans in other cities are very friendly. I've been to any number of stadiums as a Mets fan, and had some really great conversations with fans of the local team. And you know, maybe you learn a bit about the team from doing that too. Essentially, just you know, do what you like, have fun. This is this is a, this. We're fans. This is a fun thing. Yeah, don't, don't oh, stress wh- about it. And one last thing, since we came back around to Louisiana, on our very long-winded answer of this question. <laughs> Uh, the Mets briefly had a triple A affiliate in New Orleans. The New Orleans Zephyrs. I have a hat. Yes, it was the. Well, we'll, we'll get into that later. There, <laughs> there's a history of Mets affiliates and relationships and all sorts of stuff, but that's that's not the 101. No, that's that's 401 at least. Yes, but d- they did have an affiliate in your state uh, for a brief period of time, and that team obviously still exists. Uh, the Mets are now in Vegas with that affiliate, but there is some local connection there. So yeah, that's an excellent point, Chris. All right. Well, that does it for our emails. We'll be back in just a second. currently 9.14 p.m. on Wednesday evening, and you're about to hear Kate Feldman's most recent edition of the Panic City Meter. She just sent me a message asking me to please let you know that she recorded her segment before the Mets scored, so far, 10 runs against the Pirates. So, here's Kate. Hi, it's Kate with your weekly Panic City Meter for the week of, I guess this is coming out June 16th, I think. I don't know. I don't have my calendar. So, I said this last week and it came completely true because every single week that I've done this meter, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And the Mets are just, I don't even want to watch them anymore. It's not fun. It's not entertaining. It's not amusing. They are playing really bad baseball. Nobody is hitting. Everyone is hurt. The pitching has been fine, but not good enough. And it's just, it is getting a little worrisome. They are still, as of today, it's Wednesday afternoon, they are still five games back of the Nats. They do still have a wild card spot. I know it's, you know, middle of June. They do still have the wild card spot. But other than, you know, you're getting some players back from injury, I don't know what's going to change. And I don't know that a trade is going to help. I don't know that they have the pieces to pull off a trade. I really like Wheeler. I don't want them to get rid of Wheeler. 
there's not a whole lot in the farm system. And you're getting Darno back. Duda will eventually come back. Walker is hurt right now, but that's supposedly temporary. Ligaris, I don't even know what's wrong with him. It's like his tooth or something. I have no idea what that is. But he's supposedly fine. Confort is dealing with a wrist thing. Everyone's hurt. I, this is so depressing. I don't know. I just don't know that I believe that David Wright is coming back to baseball. And it's the saddest sentence I've ever said in my life. But it's going to take a lot. And I don't know that it's worth it for him, for the team. And we're supposed to find out at the end of this week, you know, what's going on with that. And it'll probably be depressing no matter what it is. But the team itself, like I said, it's just ugly. Tuesday night, they almost got freaking no hit by Talion, whatever his name is, the Pirates rookie, second you know, second start of the season. Let's just no hit the Mets. That's completely normal for a major league team coming off of a National League championship. It's ugly, it's not pretty, it's painful to watch, and it's getting boring. So hopefully I'll have some better news next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening to another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Please email the show at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Please follow all of our contributors on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve Schreiber is at underscore Mr. Met. Brian Renzi is at brenz 78 Lucas Vlahos is at LVlahos343. Aaron York is at APY5000. And Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. We love to hear from you. Please keep those forgotten Mets suggestions coming. And until next week, let's go Mets! Mets!